This is the Third Act Podcast, shining a spotlight on individuals, charities, and small business owners suffering from illness, economic shutdown, or lack of support and funding. Meaningful conversations that generate compassion and financial support from listeners compelled to join us on this journey to improve the lives of others. I'm gonna dance with the stranger. I'm gonna enjoy your show. I'm gonna learn to forget and really let it go. And most of all, I wanna shine a light on good and look to give back. And that's what I'll do with my third, third act. And now your host, Roger Steed. Welcome to the Third Act Podcast. Sometimes I am not a big fan of social media, and other times I see huge benefits from connecting with new people and learning about their stories and experiences. Today, you will be participating in the first international podcast for the Third Act, and I'm extremely fortunate to share this recording with an individual I met through LinkedIn that happens to live in London. I was drawn to Stephen's story because of the dramatic nature of his life-changing events and the realization that all of us need to remember that your life can change in a nanosecond for any unexpected reason, and we should not take that for granted. My guest today is Stephen Dowd. Stephen had a promising career in corporate finance and was doing his thing at BNY Mellon in London as head of recruitment for the EMEA region before a freak accident happened in 2016 that changed his life in a big way. Stephen is married and is currently bouncing around suburbia London, living with friends, waiting for his house to be finished. If I may, you are about to hear a remarkable and candid story of despair and recovery that is truly astounding, that has all the makings of a great book or movie, with many chapters left to be written. I hope Stephen includes us as part of the third act in his future credits. Without further delay, I would like to please introduce Stephen Dow to our community and say welcome, Stephen, to the podcast. Hi, Roger. Hi, Roger. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to have a chat. You betcha. Um, Glad to see you. It's a nice, clear morning in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan at 7 a.m., I hope the weather is nice in Sussex and you get to enjoy some sun after the podcast today. Let's start the discussion, if you may, with your remembrance of the event in 2016 that changed your life. Please share your comments and reflections of that time, please. Sure. So my story, as you say, starts back in 2016 or just in the lead up to 2016. So I was working for BMY Mellon, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know. They're a large investment management house. And I was running recruitment for the investment management side of that business across Europe, Middle East, Africa. Fairly um, sizable job, fairly sizable region. Lots of stress, lots of anxiety, all the things that people that work in financial services know and know very familiar times where you're doing your 12-hour days, 13-hour days and introducing yourself to your wife and the family on the weekends, that kind of thing. And um, yes. one of the conversations I was having was with one of my team. It was a guy called Dan and he said to me, I'm a bit of an Ironman type. I fancy doing some charity fundraising. I've done some marathon runs. I've done some bits and bobs in the past. But one thing that I'd love to do is ride London, which is a, a bike ride 
which is 100 miles in length. They shut down all the roads. You drive around all the major landmarks. You go up into the Surrey Hills and back again. It's an incredible yep. event. It's basically the London Marathon for cycling. And uh, I'd never done anything like that before. I certainly wasn't a cyclist, but I thought, you know what, why not? I'm the right side of, of 40. That was 36 at the time. And I thought, let's give it a go and see where we can go. I did what every self-respecting boy should do. And I went out and bought <laughs> as much Lycra as I could possibly lay my hands on and bought the most right. expensive carbon fiber bike that I could get. Oh, sure. Color coding sure. my helmet with my socks, you know, all the important stuff like you do. And um then I said about training, but we did a, a 10 mile commute to work. He lived near me, so we rode in together. And this particular morning I was heading down to Dan's place. Uh, we're going to get ready for that 10 mile commute. And unfortunately I didn't get there. I hit a barrier I didn't see, came out of nowhere. It was a black thin barrier that the type you use to block off roads and, and private ways. And unfortunately I just didn't see it until it was too late. And, uh, when you fell, did you feel pain or were you immediately paralyzed or what was that? What do you remember about that? Well, I was awake throughout my entire injury and uh, effectively as I approached that barrier, I slammed on the brakes and uh, my front and back wheels locked up. It was only a matter of feet before I was going to hit the barrier. So the impact was fairly inevitable. And as I went over the top, I'm six foot a bit, 100 kilos. I went over the top, landed on my beautiful color-coded helmet, which saved me from a brain injury, but unfortunately didn't save me from breaking my neck. And uh, right. I was Im immediately paralyzed from that point down. Um, wow. Wow. When you were, you finally got to the hospital and you say you never lost consciousness. Give us a feeling of what you were thinking in your mind at that time. You didn't know the future really, but were you already feeling, oh my God, my life is changing right now. Or can you even put us in that, in your mind at that time? Yeah, it's funny. It's, uh, just before being in the ambulance on the way to hospital, there was a thing that happened that I'll never forget and I didn't really expect. As I slammed into the ground, I hit the ground really hard with my left cheek. And in that way where you're dazed and confused, you know, maybe you've experienced it through sport or just being in a fight or something, that sort of shock moment. I thought, oh, yeah. wow, what's what's happened here? And, uh, and I reached up to my left cheek to rub the bit that hurts, the most natural thing in the world. Unfortunately, though, my hand didn't get there. And it was at that point when I realized that, wait a minute, this is not right. And I tried to do it again. And, and unfortunately, I had the same, the same, output, uh, the same outcome. But it was right, when I right. was lying on the ground there thinking, oh, my God, this is really worrying. Something seriously has gone wrong here. I can't feel the rest of my body at all. Right, and, right. And that's right. where the panic started to set in, really. When you were at the hospital and your doctors were assessing you, were, were you? You said you never lost consciousness, but you were you awake when they're discussing your condition and diagnosis, for example, or as a question? Yes and no. So I went through a battery of tests. When I find myself at hospital, I, I get taken off in an ambulance and uh, I arrived at St. George's Hospital, one of the um, training hospitals here in London. And they put me through the battery of tests that you'd expect, all the MRIs, the x-rays, all that sort of stuff, the various tests. And yeah, it was fairly obvious fairly quickly when the results came back, that it was a pretty bleak outcome. And in fact, I had a guy called Matt. He was uh, one of my consultants. He wandered over to my bedside and he didn't pull any punches. And uh, I think in hindsight, that was the best way to be, actually. Just give me the facts. And uh, he said, Steve, I won't lie. Your injury is devastating. You've broken your neck at C3-4, which is bang in the middle of the seven bones of your neck. On the upside... You haven't severed your spinal cord. You've damaged it badly, but you haven't severed it. Severing it would be called a complete injury. What I have is what's called an incomplete injury. 
And the prognosis, whilst bleak, is better for an incomplete injury than a... But he said to me, your injury is so devastating, we just don't know if you're going to get anything back, frankly. But... Was your wife was your wife there at the time? Was she at your bedside at, yeah, she at was. that moment? Yeah, she was. So yeah. by this point, obviously, when I had the injury, I was on my own. But my wife very quickly found her way to the hospital and, and to my bedside and was with me all the way through. She's been a rock all the way through this whole process, really. But, uh, oh, I'm sure. Sure. But yeah, Matt said to me, uh, we just don't know what you're going to get back. But, the, but we can't make it any worse if we put you through a clinical research trial, an experimental research trial, which was being held at that very hospital at that very time. Stars aligned, really. It was run by a group or rather funded by a group called Wings for Life, who are a spinal cord injury foundation. And they fund experimental research around the world, always with that lookout for the cure for spinal cord injury paralysis. So they weren't funding me per se. They were just funding this trial of 50. And I was told that if you wanted to be involved in that, you would be eligible. You would be number 45. And like we say, we can't make it any worse, but we can't promise we can make it better. Uh, so what do you want to do? And uh, so, yeah, that was the, the question we were faced with. When we uh, talked in the summer and I've read a couple of your notes and listened to another podcast, you talked about your moments of despair and the, maybe the initial days of feeling your own diagnosis and at that time, a bleak future. You said you contemplated purchasing a one-way ticket to Switzerland with no return. That kind of says everything right there. But but give us a real description of your mindset right there. Were you really just totally despondent? And then there's this sentence that you said you promised your wife something. Can you share that? And what, what was that promise you made? Mm, sure. Yeah, I was lying there, just a pair of eyes on a pillow, looking up at ceiling tiles. I had nothing below the neck whatsoever. And at 36 years old, I didn't want that for me. I didn't want that to be the rest of my life. I'm going to caveat that and say that some people live incredibly full, wholesome lives without the use of their body per se. I guarantee nobody wants that injury or that prognosis, but it's not the end of the world for everyone, but it's a very personal injury and a very personal choice. And in that situation, my wife and I said, we don't really want this. I don't want this for me. I don't want it for Helen, my wife. She didn't want it for me either. And we faced the next 40, 50 years of being entirely dependent on someone else. It just wasn't for me. So I very quickly made that conversation, that outcome, that if that was going to be the case, then we would book the one-way ticket to Switzerland and, and seek assisted suicide to, to finish that story. But I'm here. So clearly yeah. that's not the route we took. Yeah, and It wasn't yeah. just because the airline was full that week. <laughs> um, <laughs> we did have a different outcome. And uh, I thought to myself, Switzerland's always there. So let's give this an opportunity and see what we can do with it. And so I went through the surgery within 24 hours. I was in and out of surgery. Uh, I had the various pieces of metal put into my neck and all the sort of structural stuff they do. And, but also this experimental trial, which was to do with pressure. So they were looking at the pressure on the spinal cord and managing that pressure because the uh, pressure on the spinal cord can cause an incomplete injury to become a complete injury if you don't remove the bruising quickly enough. You know, that bruising can then cause cell death. And if that cell, if those cells die, then you end up with a gap between the top and the bottom of your spinal cord, which effectively is the same as a complete injury, which is far worse than a uh, for prognosis than, a, than an income. So yeah, within 24 hours, I was in and out of surgery. And, uh, and then I woke up the next day and had thinking I might suddenly have this miraculous win. And that didn't happen. I actually didn't have any sensation at all when I woke up from that surgery. 
but give me 24 hours and I was talking to my wife and this is the bit you refer to. I was talking to Helen and I thought to myself, I need a goal. I need to not be stuck in my moment, stuck in the horror of what was happening, but I needed something to look forward to, something I can move towards. So I don't know why I came up with this number, but I opened one eye and I said to Helen, what's 200 days from now? And she said, it's yep. a bit confused. She kind of looked at me and worked it out. So it's December the 22nd. Why is that? And I said, give me 200 days and I'll be back to normal. Give me Christmas day and I'll be back to normal. And, and that was it. And that, that became my gold, my North Star, my gold medal winning ambition to spend the next 200 days every single day moving towards the bold, ambitious goal. Um, but as we all know through our careers and through our lives, bold, ambitious goals are massively important, but you don't win bold, ambitious goals in one fell swoop. You have to have a series of goals that lead to that goal. So yes, I had my North Star and I had my promise to Helen, my 200 days promise. But then I set about a series of little daily goals, sometimes more than one, to just make incremental wins, you know, little tiny movements forward, whatever they were, whether it was going to be a twitch of a of a thumb, which was actually the first movement I had, or a patch of skin coming back online, or even just a mental win, not being able to spend maybe an hour not thinking about the dark thoughts, spending time in the good space. Uh, and then every time we had a little win like that, then we would celebrate as if we would as if we'd won that gold medal because those little celebrations are, are equally as important on the little ones as they are on the big. Sure. So, the wings of life research was just really on the medical side and your physical therapy and slow recovery was more personally driven or, or were they combined? Yeah, Wings for Life fund research. So they don't fund individuals, they fund the research. Effectively, they fund the scientists that look at these types of trials and research that will lead to a cure for spinal cord injury paralysis. But when it comes down to helping yourself, then I had an incredible team, trauma physio, trauma occupational therapy, when I was in the first hospital that I was in, I was there for two months. I then moved to a second hospital, which was a rehabilitation hospital for a further two months. And I had another team of physios there. But then equally, it's all well and good having physios and timetables with meetings in it. You've got a hell of a lot of space where it's just you, yourself and you, right? And right. what are you going to do with that time? I found myself strapping rubber bands to my bed and desperately trying to move using those gotcha. hand gotcha. Gotcha. movements, working with one another. By the time I got to my second hospital, I had not only made enough of a, a recovery to be able to stand, but I was a actually able to take my first steps as well. So I was able to then jump onto things like Zimmer frames and very annoyingly at four in the morning for everybody else in the ward, listen to my, <laughs> my Zimmer frame clicking down the corridor. Lacking down the hallway. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was getting about four hours sleep every night because the rest of it was just spent working sure. out basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So, from your, the time of the accident, when did you first start clacking down the halls and start your s slow walking? What period of time was that? And then finally you were able to walk and yeah, uh, continue on your recovery. Give us a picture of that timeline. So it was actually relatively swiftly. If you look at where I was from my injury date to when I took my first, when I was able to stand and take my first very gentle steps, as it were. It was only 90 days, three months between being a head on a pillow, nothing below the neck at all, 
to be able to not only stand, but actually then start to shuffle. And I mean, we've missed out the huge Rocky montage that goes in the interim before that, of course, um, and all those dark moments and then upsides as well. It's not all misery. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very optimistic people uh, that I met on my journey that gave me some fantastic advice and tools that I was able to use and, and harness my mental energy to push me forward as much as my physical. But yeah, it was just a 90 day period before I took those first steps. And and But again, when I say it's only 90 days, actually all it was the next day after the day before. And that was my yes, whole mindset. Yes. Yeah, I just, oh yeah, right. I compared myself to where I was just 24 hours beforehand at eight o'clock every evening. So I literally said, okay, it's eight o'clock. Let's look back on the day. Are you better than you were yesterday? I love that quote. I love that quote, yeah. <laughs> and if the answer was yes, win, celebrate. If the answer was no, try and understand why. Sometimes it was because I just didn't work hard enough. And I've got no excuse for that. I gave myself, a, I had a word with myself <laughs> for the next day. But then other days I didn't advance as much as I did the day before, mostly because my body wouldn't allow me to, or it had been particularly tired or I'd thrown a fever or something, and something out of my control. And if that was the case, then I was okay with myself. So let you try your best. Uh, you gave it your all. And whatever your 100% looked like, as long as it was your 100%, then you're winning. Yeah, so I just basically did a day-by-day -day win until eventually we got to that day 90 for the first steps. It's, um, from hearing you talk, when did you realize that you were actually putting together this sort of toolkit for others that you could express and then you became the motivational speaker? When did that click in or what was that spark to say i'm doing these things with the help of the community with my own drive and determination but talk about that a little bit please yeah so i was very lucky obviously in hindsight that might seem like a strange thing to say having broken my neck and become totally paralyzed but i was very lucky because i was able to make a level of recovery which is fairly abnormal to people with my level of injury and because of the experiences i'd had i felt this overwhelming need to share that with people because I'd met a whole bunch of people that had either been through a very similar thing, maybe a spinal cord injury of their own, or they'd been through whatever their life challenge was. It doesn't have to be spinal cord injury. We've all had our biggest challenge. Mine happens to be paralysis. Other people, it might be loss of a job or loss of a parent or loss of normally loss actually comes into this quite a lot, or, or it could be mental health struggles or whatever. And I felt that the stories I had in my own experiences could be helpful and translatable to others and, and could help them. But I didn't sit there and design a toolkit whilst I was going through it. It was only really about a year afterwards when I sat down and said, how the hell did I get through this? Yeah, how did that happen? Because this isn't normal, yeah. right? This isn't what people no. normally do. So if it's not what people normally do, then there must have been something that helped me. And I wanted to boil that down because if I'm going to share it with people, me just yawing on for hours and hours about stories from hospital and stories from paralysis isn't going to necessarily have the same impactful moment that it needs to have. So I designed the sort of key. I sat down with a piece of paper and I wrote down all the key things that I thought were poignant. And then I distilled them all down into a model, which I call challenge. So it's literally nine tools and they spell out the word challenge. Behind each one of those letters is a different tool that I used, that I either was told about or I experienced or I just organically had that I was able to harness and use. And so, yeah, luckily now I've left my job in financial services and I now focus on keynote speaking and motivational speaking for corporates around the world, helping them face their challenges and their forced change and, and deal with crisis resilience head on. So this is becoming a business, really. It's not just a vocation to give back, to be philanthropic. 
you see this as a future endeavor, business endeavor. Is that right? Am I reading that right or hearing that right? Yes. From a business perspective, that, that is now from an income perspective. I now am a keynote speaker. That's what, what I do as a day job. But I find there are two things uh, that I for effectively. Either there's a corporate that needs that assistance and as a business transaction, I can bring in some of those tools and I can upskill some of their people. I can inspire and motivate their people through time. And there's fees attached to that, which obviously pays the mortgage this end as well. Or equally, the philanthropic element of me is still very much there. I still feel like I need to share that with certain people. So if there's a compelling reason that a particular audience or a particular person even should need to hear some of these stories, then it's not always a business transaction. Yeah, so I do do that. In fact, I did that this morning. Someone called me that had unfortunately had a very similar injury, hasn't had the recovery in her hands that she would like to have. And she went to the same rehabilitation hospital as me. And because of my time there, the nurses and physios remembered me. So they put us in touch. And now I keep in touch with her to, to check her progress regularly and see how she's getting on. But obviously that's not a business relationship. That's more of a mentoring thing. No, I, I I sense that the community involvement with people in similar circumstances is quite big. And I know you're keen, very keen on connecting. So, so this gets into the realm of when you put the stuff, your principles on paper, your nine principles for challenge, and you started to talk about them, set up engagements. How did you do that through the last 18 months with the COVID pandemic? going across England as well as the states in the world. How, how did that all come about? You mean, how did I organize speaking events? With yeah, how, yeah, deliver exactly. those? Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. A connection for you, as much as it is for me, is a real passion. So finding people who around the world that need to in somehow connect and, and share experiences has always been an interest of mine. I used to be a headhunter, effectively. It's one of my core skill sets is to get in front of people. Um, and to talk to them about what's interesting to them and find things that could be beneficial to them. And so I put my headhunter skills to good use and got into LinkedIn. And I think these days I'm probably about 20,000 connections or something ridiculous. So I know, it's unbelievable. So, I'm so jealous. Oh, I don't. I've, I've been collecting them for many years. But then as a head of recruitment, obviously everyone wants to be a friend as well. So it wasn't hard to harvest. Them. But equally, I think I'm a big fan of connections, but meaningful connections. I'm not into just having them for the sake of having them. What's the point of numbers? They're not vanity metrics otherwise, are they? They need to be useful. But yeah, so I got on the phone and I started speaking to a number of different people about what I do versus what they need and, or rather the other way around, find out what they need first and then talk about what it is that I do that could help. But I also thought if I'm going to do this professionally and I'm going to charge people to do this, I should really invest in myself so that I'm giving a better product to them. So I spent some time learning how to be a speaker, how to be a keynote speaker and the business of keynote speaking. So I put myself onto a program called the Speaker Business Accelerator. And off the back of that, I then learned how to develop a speaking career and how to deliver a keynote in the most impactful way that people really want to see that. And I've been very lucky to have found my way into some incredible clients like Nike and Just Eat and Aviva. Just yesterday at time of recording, I took a phone call from one of those contacts that I'd built over time. And I'm going to be heading out to Milan next week to do a conference, which will be amazing for a large asset management group as they're speaking to a room full of 60 IFAs about their new products that are upcoming, but they want to bring everyone together in the same room for the first time since the COVID epidemic. And that's going to be scary for people. It's going to be challenging. Yeah, for it will people. be. And we're it going to be, be talking a lot about using my story as a backdrop, but really what we're talking about is their challenges and overcoming those challenges and putting things into perspective. And what does that mean? 
how do you make the most of your time together? And that's really where we're going to be going with that talk. So every client's needs are different, but yeah, I think that's going to be a common thread as we come out of COVID. Oh, I, I can see your future is going to be very busy over the next several years. So <laughs> no, believe me, it will be. But let's go back to the nine principles of your challenge a little bit and talk about one or two that when you're talking to most audiences and just think of my audience of 500 plus people that uh, are older and been their life experiences or their challenges might be loss of a job or retirement of a child or addiction or something more of a normal life event. But what would be one or two that you would really hone in on that might help our listeners, please? I think it's important to realize that challenge, whatever it is, is yours. And it's not relevant to other people. My, my biggest challenge was paralysis. If your biggest challenge is divorce, then that's still your biggest challenge. It's not any less important to you. And I think a lot of people fail to make that distinction because they're constantly comparing themselves to other people. So once you do that and you start to understand that your challenge is actually very important to you, then you can deal with the focus that it really is deserving of. Uh, one of the tools in the toolkit, as I say, the word challenge, we're going to take the letter C. So the first one in that, uh, this, they're in no particular order, by the way, but the C uh, stands for choose to respond effectively. So really, we're talking about choice. I think a lot of people that are in situations like mine have things happen to them and they don't know what's going on. It's all these bombardments of fear and anxiety. And you've got maybe some people doing things to you physically. That could be intrusive exams and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that happens around your body and around your environment. But actually, when it boils down to it, you do have the opportunity to respond to that situation. And I think response is something that should be considered a choice. It's not, otherwise it's a reaction. And I think if you can change the mindset from reacting to a situation to responding to a situation, I think there's a lot more power. There's a lot more control and it's a lot easier to harness your positive mindset. Uh, it sounds a bit wishy-washy when you call it that, but I think you, you focus very deeply on, a, on an outcome and you move towards that outcome. So choose to respond effectively, I think is a really important way forwards. I'm going to also underline the fact that it says effectively at the end of that yes. sentence. Yes. It's not yes. just choosing to respond. It's choosing to respond in a way that is most beneficial to your situation at that time with the resources that you have at that time. Because otherwise you can look back on these things and you can say, oh, I wish I'd have done this or I should have done that. But actually, given where you are at the time, the resources that you have are also really important and keeping keeping focused on what the effect of that choice will be for you uh, and then choosing the best one is quite an important moment. I know there are other uh, major facets of the model, but it just the one thing that pops into my mind is your sort of journey and your ability to push yourself every day. But for someone that's listening for goal setting, daily goal setting, minute sort of movements to improve yourself on a daily basis, what would you suggest? What would be sort of the help or the motivation someone might need to make a difference every day to get better? The minute moments are the only ones that we do, right? Every time you push yourself forward, you take one footstep at a time. You just keep moving forward incrementally. Every now and then you might be lucky and maybe take two at the same time and go, whoa, hold on a second. I think that's what I acknowledge as luck is when I miss a step that maybe I should have done and now I don't have to do it. But actually in reality, I'm never going to jump into tomorrow. Right? I'm always going to have to just take one step at a time. And I think 
And that's not just me. I'm using the words me, but actually what I'm saying is you and your listeners. So those individuals focusing on minute goals, that's absolutely the right way to do it. The way I do it is that I also couple it with that North Star goal. So I have a bold, ambitious, world-beating goal that I have to believe is possible, regardless of how obscenely ambitious it might be. But then I couple it with my, with my little wins so that I know that I'm always moving towards something and not just moving forwards for the sake of moving forwards. I'm moving forwards in a predefined direction. Wow. And I might take Very some time cool. out and, and go left or right of where I intended to go. You know, flexibility is an important part of goal setting. But if you've got a key direction that you're moving in, then that one step after the other becomes so much easier moving towards a goal towards a finish line, whatever you want to call it, than it is just gradually running across a field with nowhere to go. Absolutely. I will provide more of this information for our listeners next week when I write sort of the show notes uh, for this podcast. I did want to spend some time on your creation of your wonderful uh, challenge, the Indo Road Challenge that you put together last year, pulled off beautifully. Can you talk about that a little bit, give our audience a flavor of what your vision was, how it came about, and how you, I, I use the word pull it off, but it's pretty remarkable what you did. But please share that with us, please. Sure. Then, so you're referring to Enduro Challenge. Uh, yeah. Yes. Enduro Challenge is effectively is the world's biggest fully inclusive indoor rowing event for charity. So this came about really because after my promise to Helen of walking within 200 days and, and meeting that promise. Christmas Day, my house, 2016, I walked to Turkey to the table and we got to celebrate that moment. I got a bit addicted to challenge and I started pushing myself out with bigger and bigger goals. So a series of kind of charity events became my future for the next few years. And it all culminated last year in Enduro Challenge where I said to myself, I was standing at the top of my stairs having just completed uh, another event called the Isolation Everest Challenge, where I became the first tetraplegic to virtually summit Everest on my stairs at home over COVID. Three and a half days of walking up and down my stairs. I, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't fun in any way, but it was an incredible achievement I'm very proud of. But it was standing at the top of the stairs. I was talking to a journalist and she was saying to me, so what next in that way that journalists do when you've just achieved the most amazing yeah. thing that they want to know what <laughs> you right. haven't done. So I said, you know what? I really fancy an indoor rowing event. So I sat down with a piece of paper and I said, what would the world's biggest version of that look? I know nothing about rowing. I know nobody in rowing, but I give myself 200 days as a kind of motif of challenge to do something interesting and see what I can pull off in that time. And eventually we ended up with February the 6th, I think it was 2021 this year. We ended up with a live streamed event where we had a, a thousand rowers around the world from 11 different countries, including the US and the UK and, and all over, rowing together on, they were able-bodied and disabled people rowing together on rowing machines through this live streamed event that was hosted. And it was just amazing. It was really fun to do. And I'll send you the link, maybe put that on the show notes for anyone that's interested in. in no, I do. Uh, yeah. Please, let's do that. And uh, it was it was wonderful. We raised £27,000 for Wings for Life. Uh, the, all of that money went directly to Wings for Life. And we brought together a community uh, which normally is very competitive. Well, it's, it's hugely competitive. We exchanged competition for camaraderie. And we exchanged meters for minutes. So oh, we had that. everyone everywhere pulling together at a time when good news was in short supply with COVID. And it meant that we could all do something together around the world, no matter who we were, no matter where we were. So we had kids of five or six years old 
on a rowing machine at the same time as gold medal Olympians and the, and grandma at 90 and this guy with no legs. And oh, it was just amazing. It was a really wonderful thing to be a part of. And we're going to be trying to do that every year. That was the first and I'm trying to do it again this year. So, well, next year now. So February the 5th, 2022, if you can get access to a rowing machine, we're going to take it to the team this time. So we're going to push it out beyond the, what we called micro events, which were the small events, probably a man in his man cave type style or woman in her she shed, depending on who you are. And we're going to try and take it to the team. So we're trying to push it more into gyms and schools and rowing clubs and get people together in the same space so we can celebrate together this global movement. As we talked earlier in the week, I have an idea because I was introduced by a friend to a smallish rowing club, call it a gym, if you will. That's here in our town. And it would be beautiful if we could find a way to participate with your event next February. Let's try to make that happen. I, like you, I like a challenge and I like something to sort of put on the horizon as something we might be able to pull off and contribute to and be a part of. That whole thing is uh, right down my alley. So please keep us in the loop. Any communication about it? send it my way and I'll send it out to our community and we'll see if we can get a, a group together that can uh, contribute and join you and make it a big, bigger party than it was last year. It so would, that'd be fun. It would be wonderful to row with you, Roger, and all of the people that are listening. So uh, I can see Amazon getting hot as we speak. So people looking for <laughs> rowing machines. The one thing I would say is that you don't need to be a rower to row. It's about going through the actions. It's about doing something together. It's not even really a rowing event, if I'm honest. It's a global community event that uses rowing yeah. as the medium. So I was, I was going to ask that if, because obviously elderly people and others that might want to participate that cannot actually physically row, if there's a way for them to participate, yeah. whether it's, I don't know, getting on the floor and doing yoga or something to just be a part of the community. If they're part of it, they're part of it. Absolutely. And if you want to, even if you can sit on a rowing machine and just move your arms, then that's fine. That's frankly, that's what some para rowers do. You know, they win gold medals doing that. They're not even using their legs. So <laughs> it is possible to row with even just your arms if you're not a rower per se. And if you're brand new to rowing, frankly, it's an incredible sport. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of. You use nearly 90% of your muscle groups doing this kind of exercise as well. So it's good for you. And frankly, it's just great fun raising some great money for a great cause. No, I love that. I love that. Let's let's keep continue to talk about that. As you say, the reporter in me is going to ask the question, do you have any other fundraising events in your mind on your radar that you're looking forward to in 2022 besides the challenge? Honestly, doing the challenge takes up my every waking moment a lot of the time. So, um, <laughs> so I'm going to say no, because Enduro Challenge is my absolute focus for that, for, for charity fundraising this year. But but yeah, it's it, I'm not even joking. It's literally like a full-time job that uh, we have to pull so many strings <laughs> oh, to, to make it work. Oh. But hopefully on the day, February the 5th, 2022, we can get you registered. You can join everyone everywhere, pulling together for four hours and yeah, have a wonderful time, as I say, raising money. We are changing the charity this year. Year. So last year we raised the money for Wings for Life for obvious reasons because of my, my own personal story. This year we're going to be raising money for the Para Rowing Foundation, which is pararowingfoundation.org if you wanted to check it out. There, if I were to give you a brief summary of those guys, effectively the Para Rowing Foundation are, they are headquartered in the US out of Boston, although actually they are country agnostic. They help rowers around the world become the best athletes that they can be, para-athletes, through the sport of rowing. They help people who are already at the top of their tree that want to go to the Olympics and have given things like funding grants and things to some of those that we actually would have seen over the Paralympic Games that's just happened. Through to people who have never rowed before that want to experience rowing 
for the first time, which may be through a rehabilitation program, or it may be something that they just want to get into a new sport and try something different. So they help, again, everyone everywhere. They're, they're around the world. They're not organized to a particular boat shed. They are everyone everywhere. And, and that's why it rings so true to the, uh, the spirit of Enduro Challenge. Absolutely. Well, I'll do some work and research on that, and we'll uh, put that out next week as well. But we're running out of, out of time as I look at the clock. So I wanted to thank you so much for uh, spending your day with us and sharing some time on the podcast for the community. Absolutely. Thanks for anyway. having me, Roger. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Third Act Podcast. To find out more about who we are spotlighting, how to get involved, or find show notes on today's episode, go to wearethirdact.com.